Welcome to Rising Tide, a podcast for career-driven women to find inspiration, find courage, and find their voice. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Rising Tide podcast. I'm your host, Margaret Winnegar. And in case we haven't met before, I help ambitious, high-achieving women who are ready for more. As a coach and sales executive consultant, as well as keynote speaker, I am on a mission to arm you with resources and foundational frameworks that are going to allow you to live in your fullest potential. If you want to learn more, you can go to my website. It's margaretwinegar.com. Let's get to today's amazing guest. I wanted to bring all of these structures and ways that we do things that just don't work in the startup world. And so it was a lot about reteaching myself how to actually build something with a grassroots effort and how to build something with little or no resources. And so it was a really interesting transition. I want to introduce you to Lauren Martirano. She is the founder and CEO of Zinnia, a platform for every event that allows organizers to plan their next offsite in a matter of clicks. Early in her career, Lauren learned the value of connection, whether that was in developing relationships with customers or fostering strong mentor relationships, Lauren's investment and genuine connection has been a core to her success. On today's episode, she shares the value of speaking up early and often when facing challenges, the jarring transition from global software companies to early stage startup, realizing her career path was no longer aligning with what brought her purpose and being open to make a change. This and so much more. In addition to being founder and CEO of Zinnia, Lauren is an award-winning sales professional and passionate community builder who I can't wait for you to meet. Enjoy. Welcome to Rising Tide, Lauren. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I got to tell you, I, I've done a lot of interviews lately with women who have been in all kinds of different roles and industries, and I am really excited to get to talk to somebody who has largely operated in a similar world that I have. So I'm much more familiar with your world, which makes me very happy. It makes my job just a tiny bit easier. <laughs> <laughs> I always joke that I'm a recovering corporate employee. So yes. Oh my, well, tell me about that. What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, I always make that as a joke, but I really loved my time in corporate, but it's wildly different. The pressures mm. are different. The expectations are different. And also just the fulfillment is so much different working yeah. for somebody else versus building something on your own. Isn't that just so true? And, you know, it's so interesting because I mean, as we'll get into your career has, you've worked for really well-known, reputable brands, but also very large companies like LG and Salesforce and Microsoft. And so, you know, very different than being your own boss and working in a startup. Wildly different. And I've taken a lot of what I've learned from there and taken it here. So I can't complain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's maybe start with where you are today. So you have founded an amazing company fairly recently in the last few months, which is so exciting. So tell us about Xenia. Tell us about, you know, the mission and vision for this company and, and where did this come from? Yeah. So I joined Atlanta Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence in March of 2022. 
And the beauty of being an entrepreneur in residence with Atlanta Ventures is they really encourage you to take time to suss out different industries, actually confirm that there's authentic demand before ever having to launch or build anything. You know, I have always loved the Web3 space. That has always been really interesting to me. So I looked at some ideas there. But ultimately, I called up every boss I ever had, every mentor I ever had, people in all sorts of different industries and asked, you know, what keeps you up at night? What's stressful for you? What are you dealing with right now? And ultimately, the biggest thing that I kept hearing over and over is all of these people, all of these companies are now moving completely remote or more of a hybrid model, Mm. or they just have their teams kind of distributed across the country. And so how do we build culture? How do we build relationships when we're not able to meet these people in person or be with these people all the time? And a lot of this is being solved through company offsites and company retreats. So whether that's a sales kickoff or an executive offsite or, you know, anything along those lines, even incentive trips, you know, they were coming up and becoming more and more prevalent, but there's nobody's job to actually plan them. And so it falls to the sales managers or a chief of staff at a giant company or a CEO of a startup. And I've planned them before personally in my corporate career, and I know how painful they are. And so that's really where Zinnia was launched was how do we use technology to take something that nobody enjoys doing and take it from 120 hours to 200 hours of work to just about 20 clicks. Yeah. And so Zinnia was formed. Okay. So for anyone who's not familiar with what Atlanta Ventures is, will you tell us real quick, like a little bit about like what they are? Yeah. So Atlanta Ventures is a venture capital firm based out of the Atlanta tech village. And they invest in all sorts of companies, but they also have what they call the Atlanta Ventures Studio. So what that means is it's an entrepreneur in residence type program where they come in and they're essentially my co-founder. So Mm -hmm. their entire team is a resource to me, which is absolutely incredible. We have people that are experts in sales and marketing and finance and go-to-market strategy, customer success, and they are at our disposal to be able to grow something using the right guardrails, using the right network and uh, making sure that we can build something really awesome. Thank you for elaborating on that. Cause I think it's really, it's really incredible. And it takes some of the isolation out of being a founder and being kind of the, the leader of this, this company, like doing a startup (laughs) is hard enough. And so having support and having resources that are really good at what they do. And especially at this stage of a business, that's really neat. Okay. So I know many people might be thinking like I am, this is really incredible. How did you end up being part of the Atlanta Ventures studio? So before I was at Atlanta Ventures, after I left my corporate career, I actually helped launch a company in the web three ish space. But through that process, I got connected to a wonderful mentor Catherine O'Day, if you know her, she's a partner at Atlanta Ventures. Yes, she's a former and guest of Rising Tide. Oh, yes. She is an absolute rock star. If anybody that has ever met her is just, if you know her, you love her. Mm-hmm. So I met her through my last company and she ended up being just a wonderful mentor as we were raising capital and you know figuring out you know, the next steps of the company. And when it was time for me to figure out what was next, I kind of called her up and said, hey, you know, here's kind of where we are. What do I do now? What are are your thoughts? What should I be thinking about? And she said, you should be thinking about coming to Atlanta Ventures and being an entrepreneur in residence. I was (laughs) like, I don't even know what that means, but let's chat about it. And so 
I you know, met up with her the next week and met the entire Atlanta Ventures team and chatted about what that could look like, what that means, and uh, decided to jump on board. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. So, all right, this was, I'm just going to give some timestamps for people. So this was January of last year. And so Ternary, was that the name of the company? Mm-hmm. How did you get involved in co-founding a company in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> It was kind of a wild experience. So I'll back up to my time at Salesforce during my last year. Mm-hmm. I was an account executive at Salesforce in the retail space and mm-hmm. I've always loved that role. It's a really fun role. I had amazing clients that I still talk to today. I had the best team, absolutely loved my boss. But what happened was I had the best year of my career. I blew my quota out of the water. I made more money than I ever thought I would. And yet I still wasn't fulfilled. And so I actually ended up taking on a stretch project for a go-to-market strategy steering committee for restaurants and e-commerce. And I got to work with the Commerce Cloud product team and absolutely fell in love with building something from the ground up. And so we were talking about what's the market size? Why is this important? Who are our customers? Building a steering committee. And it really just taught me that this is what I love doing. And kind of at a similar time, an old ex-Salesforce employee, an engineer that I had on my team, reached out to me and he had left to start a company teaching finance and options trading and had built a product to help monetize that. And so he reached out and was like, hey, I think we can white label this and sell this to other communities do you want to help? And so I kind of started playing around with that, helping him with that, seeing if that was feasible and ultimately ended up deciding to follow that path and quit Salesforce to go, you know, two feet in on a startup for the very first time. What an interesting moment that I think so many have experienced, but you chase this thing, you have all the the things that either you thought you wanted or the world tells you matter. And then to like have that, <laughs> have that feeling like something's missing or there's something mm-hmm. more that emptiness, like that can be a bit jarring to like have, you know, have that reality be like, oh crap, like that's not it. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I'm also very type A. So my whole career, I've thought, okay, what's the next thing? You know, you move from this to being an enterprise, you know, sales executive to this, then you become a VP. And that was always the path that I thought I would follow or I should follow. And then I realized that that wouldn't bring me happiness and that wouldn't bring me fulfillment. Thankfully, you realize that sooner than later in your career, because I know so many have make it much further along before they have that moment or that, that epiphany of like, wait, hang on a sec. I'm chasing these milestones, but do I even want them? Does this even matter to me? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So you make this big move. Mm -hmm. Maybe tell us about that transition, because that's a really big decision to go from, you know, a, a very lucrative job. You've been very successful in it to your point. This is the path that you had been on to going into like full-blown startup mode. So tell us about that time of making the decision and making the move. Yeah. So the past six years, I had been putting my husband through residency or medical school and then residency. And so finances were always, you know, an important aspect of this, but given the last year that I had, I was actually able to pay off my husband's medical school loans. And so that really is what gave me that freedom to say, okay, I can take a 90% pay cut. I'm no longer have this burden on me. Mm. And 
I can go chase my dream here. The other thing is my husband and I don't have kids yet and we do want to someday. And I figured if I don't try now, I never will. And I really did love my time in corporate. So there's always a chance to go back if I want to, but why not take a chance on myself now? Right. When I actually made the transition, it was hard. You know, you, you go from this giant company in Microsoft and Salesforce to a company where we had a couple part-time employees, mm. a couple people kind of full-time and interns. And most of the people had never been in the corporate world before. And so <laughs> I wanted to bring all of these, you know, structures and ways that we do things that just don't work in the startup world. And so it was a lot about reteaching myself how to actually build something with a grassroots effort and how to build something with little or no resources. And so it was a really interesting transition. That is tough and it's not for everyone. I can say that it's like very personally, like I learned that kind of the hard way of like, you know, I enjoy having resources. <laughs> I enjoy working at a bigger company that has brilliant mm-hmm. people who know how to do things as opposed to having to learn to do it myself. So tell us about that, you know, cause you were there for about eight months. Give us a flavor. I mean, that that's very helpful as far as having to reteach yourself, but like, is there an example that comes to mind of something that you were like, Oh, this is This was something I had not seen coming in part of this process. I think for me, one of the biggest things was the type of customers that we were going after. And so Mm -hmm. we were really focused on the creator economy. So people that are providing, you know, education or entertainment or really just community. And the last people that I sold into were the biggest retail brands in the world. So it went from these multi-billion dollar companies to, you know, single solopreneurs, if you will, or influencers. And so the type of sales cycles that we had before would be eight to 10 months. And these would be one to two days and very different size of contracts and very different size of of things like that. And so starting back kind of at the beginning was really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet. And it is, it's just a different motion and who you're selling to. And in some ways it almost has like a B to C feel to it. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes we are working with solopreneurs. All right. Well, we're going to eventually work our way back to here, but I want to go back to like how this whole beautiful journey started, <laughs> because I'm very curious, where are you originally from? So I'm originally from Elkhorn, Nebraska. You are from, okay. Cause I saw you went to the university of Nebraska and I was wondering if like, maybe there was something that drew you there or that's right. Okay. So you're from Nebraska and you studied marketing. So I did. Was, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do when you graduated Were you, or had sales caught your eye while you were in college? That's such a good question. And I think like so many others, I entered college not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but I was in DECA in high school, if you're familiar with DECA. It's a marketing club kind of where you put together presentations and you go around to different competitions, kind of a mix between marketing and speech, if you will. But I joined DECA because the person leading it was one of my very favorite people. She was just an awesome teacher. And then I was like, huh, marketing's pretty cool. I think I'm gonna major in that. That was kind of how I fell into it, Sure. Uh, but I didn't really ever think about sales. I always thought about sales being like a dirty thing, use car salesmen. Uh, and then I realized that everything in life is truly sales. Sales is just human interaction and helping solve problems for other people. And 
finding solutions for them. So that's kind of how I fell into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so fascinating how that stigma is still around, even though time and time again, you know, there's people who are proving that that's not what it is. And I love, I love how you describe sales because that's, that's what it is. And so many times when I meet somebody who tells me they're not a salesperson, I giggle because I'm like, do you solve problems? They're like, well, yes. But do you help present solutions that are gonna make people's lives better? They're like, well, yes. I'm like, you're in sales. Like, congratulations. <laughs> you're a salesperson. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Maybe the only thing, thing missing is the fat commission check. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Okay. So then, so you graduate college. How do you end up at LG working in their life sciences group? Yeah. So I ended up taking a lot of credits early on in my college career and wasn't quite ready to graduate early. So of course I added a couple minors and just wanted to stay. (laughs) And through that though, I was doing, I was a Senator and the student government and had a ton of free time. So I ended up taking on kind of a full-time role with LG, knowing that it would just be through my final semester. So I knew that Selling pesticides was not the career path for me, but it did give me an awesome opportunity to learn how to run a sales cycle, to learn about what is a book of business Mm -hmm. and to learn that I truly do not want to sell pesticides, but it was a great opportunity. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So I just want to make sure I've got this right. You had a full-time job at LG. You were part of the student government body and you were also taking classes. And I was bartending and had an internship. So (laughs) I like to stay busy. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Another similar theme that seems to come up on these podcasts. Okay. So you graduate and then that's when you go to Microsoft after graduating. Yes. So actually the marketing internship I had, Microsoft was one of my clients. So I was part of what they called the Windows U crew. And it was right around the time that they launched Windows 8, which if you remember that, that was a joyous time. (laughs) But I thought I may stay on at this marketing firm, wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do. That was my junior year of college. And my contact at Microsoft actually reached out and said, hey, I think you'd be really good for an account executive role here would you be interested in interviewing? And I was like, I have no idea what an account executive is, but that sounds pretty cool. So let's interview. And then I interviewed and absolutely loved the hiring manager. I learned so much from him. And I was like, this, this seems like the right fit for me. So I ended up taking the job. Oh my gosh. How amazing that an internship for a firm that had Microsoft as a client. And then the impression that you obviously made in the work that you did opened up the door to interview for this role at a a very, I mean, coming into Microsoft, coming out of college, like that's a, it's a big deal. That's a really big move. Okay. So it looks like you end up relocating to Dallas for this job. Yes. You know, it might surprise you, but there's not a Microsoft office in Nebraska. So, (laughs) (laughs) but there's a big Microsoft campus in Dallas. And so I moved there and didn't really know anybody, but it was the best experience I could ever have asked for. I joined what's called the Microsoft Academy of College Hires. I think it's Mm. changed now, but it was called the mock program. And I'm still so close with every person that was in my starting class. Yeah. So it was the best thing I could have done right out of college. 
Yeah, that's so great. I think one of the nice things at really big companies is these like academies that they do have for fresh out of college or kind of newly transitioning into this type of work where you really do, you, you're brought in with a class, you are given a really great education and like, it really sets you up for success. That's really, really neat. I know we had a woman on, her name was Maggie Olson and she runs a program at Whirlpool that mm. is, is kind of a similar type concept for their sales professionals that they bring in. So you're at Microsoft, you're working with state and local governments and you're selling to them, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then you are wildly successful. I mean, within less than two years at this company, you're in the top 3% of performers. So clearly this clicked, but like, tell us about these first few years at Microsoft. Yeah, I honestly think one of the most beautiful things about Microsoft is how much they encourage mentorship. They also just have these people that nobody wants to leave Microsoft. It's a wonderful company to be working for. And so there's people that have been there for 20 years and there's so much to learn, especially when you're coming in as a 21 year old that hasn't done this before. And so the way that they structured it for me is one, I had an amazing manager and then he connected me with a mentor. So I traveled three days a week with a guy named Scott. I still refer to him as my work dad. He was amazing. And I went to hundreds of customer meetings with him. And for the first couple months, just listened, listened, took notes for him, learned. And then slowly he would say, okay, you're leading this part of the meeting. And then at the end of the three or four months, I was completely running the meetings with the state and local governments and then took on my own book of business. And so Not only did they give me the right mentorship and learning and boots on the ground, they also took chances on me. They said, okay, you're 21. You've never done this before. Go into the city of Chicago board meeting and sell them a million dollar contract. So Microsoft just trusted that I could learn. And that was something that I think not every company would do. So that was a huge part of my success. Right. Oh my gosh. Well, and that's so great too, to not totally get thrown into the fire, like three days into the job, but instead having the ability to be teamed up with somebody who was doing well and you could learn from. And let me ask you this. I'm very curious, having worked with, with sales teams, men and women can sell very differently. You've also got kind of a big age difference between you and him. How did you take what he taught you, but do it your way? That is so important for women and men, honestly. I think one of the things that my first boss told me that is not necessarily the greatest thing that it's true, but it's something to acknowledge is that women will get the first meeting easier because they're seen as less threatening, Mm. but it takes them longer to be taken seriously. And for men, they're taken seriously right away, but it's sometimes harder to be trusted. Mm. And so I think leaning into the fact that we can be approachable, women can tend to be a little bit more approachable or trustworthy and build relationships as seen as non-threatening can really help with that relationship building part of it. Right. I don't know that that's, you know, there's no facts driven behind that. That's really just kind of some observations, but most of my clients are really about building true and honest relationships. I'm still friends with many of the clients I've had over the last 10 years today. Like, are there things that you found again, because you were able to repeat your success, like this was not a one-time thing at Microsoft, right? You did it again at Salesforce. So were there certain things that you found, I mean, that really fostered trust and fostered those relationships? I'm a really big proponent of getting to know somebody on a personal level. Mm. 
And so I think that that's the bigger thing is knowing your clients, kids' names, if they want to share or knowing that they are a triathlete or that they really enjoy, you know, plays. I actually had a client when I was living in New Orleans that he was an actor on the side. And so I went to a couple of his plays, but he was actually really good. And so just being able to connect (laughs) on those other levels is like, I'm not here to just make money off of you. I really do want to solve your problems. And also I just love building community. I love meeting people and collecting friends everywhere I go. So kind of has just gone hand in hand. Which makes a lot of sense. I mean, as we're kind of seeing little markers and little seeds for what is becoming your your amazing company that you're launching of how important relationships and community are to you as a person and how you've integrated that into the work that you do. That's really cool. Okay. So yeah. So you mentioned moving to New Orleans. So you're, you're in Dallas, you do this for a year and then you move to Louisiana from there. So another big move. Yes. Yes. So this was a personal move. Uh, Luckily, Microsoft is such a big company. They're supportive of anything, but I met my husband in Dallas and he decided he wanted to go to a career change and wanted to go to medical school. And so he applied and to a couple of schools and decided to go to Tulane and we moved there. Let me tell you, it's a different, big, big change from Dallas. So right. Big change from Dallas, big change from Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Wow. Well, so, I mean, so that's, that's great that you were able to, to pivot, but then that also means starting over in sales in a lot of ways. Cause now you've got a new, a new book of business. Yeah. So at that point, it actually kind of lined up well that I wasn't looking to to switch roles. I liked where I was, but I had an amazing manager reach out to me that I'd never met and just said, you know, he said, Hey, I'm looking for somebody to cover the Louisiana and, you know, kind of Gulf coast region. I see that you're, you just moved there. Is this something that you'd like to chat about? And I wasn't really sure, but I ended up chatting with him and one, he was the most inspirational encouraging leader that I had met. And, you know, he wanted to take a chance on me to take on an even bigger book of business, something that most people hadn't, wouldn't get the chance to at my age and my stage in my career. And so I thought, why not? Let's give this a shot. And it was one of the biggest growth, you know, couple years for me working for him and for that team. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that. Like what were some of the big like growth areas that happened over those two years? I always tell him that my time on that team was what taught me to be resilient. And a big part of that was there was a couple things economically that were happening at the time. One, oil and gas had absolutely plummeted. And two, there was a big hurricane that had happened. And so I had a list of 40 named accounts. And through my first year on his team, I think it was 36 of them filed bankruptcy. And so I learned resilience in that, okay, we're not going to be able to sell into these, but how do we still make a mark for Microsoft here? And how do we still build a really good brand for ourselves while we're waiting for this economy to recover? And so we actually built what's called the CIO gives back, which I don't know if they still do it anymore, but we started this little mini organization within Microsoft where instead of having sales meetings or conferences, Once a month, we would get all the CIOs in the region together to do a service project. So we served at the soup kitchen. We built a Habitat for Humanity house. 
And it was incredible to see these people kind of come together, knowing they couldn't purchase anything, right? They all are struggling with their business, but kind of build a tighter IT relationship. Mm -hmm. And that ended up proving fruitful in the long run when businesses were starting to recover and did need technology again. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's again, another community that you're helping (laughs) form and build and, and relationships at the heart of it. So that, you know, and not forcing, I think again, when so many people think about sales, it's that like selfish driven, as opposed to, you know, in this case, it was very much meeting people exactly where they were at and knowing that when, when the time was right, like you wanted to be the one that they thought to call. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. It was great. We had a lot of uh, crawfish boils in people's backyards and it was just, it was a fun time in the career too. So I'm curious too, I mean, because like as a sales professional, you carry a quota, 36 of your 40 named accounts have declared bankruptcy, just mentally as a high performer, like how did you kind of manage some of that, like wanting to perform, but also facing the reality of things that were totally outside of your control? I think for me, the biggest thing, the biggest saving grace was my leader, Jacob. He was so encouraging through all of this. And even his leader were nothing but supportive. And so, yes, I am type A. Yes. I've always wanted to be number one on every team, but I was loud early and often about when things were happening. And so I never want to fail in the dark. I think that it's really Mm -hmm. important when things aren't going right to share early and often, Hey, I'm struggling here. Hey, I need help. And so I think that over communication with the team, they just continued to encourage me. And actually they ended up putting me up for an award of resiliency. And I got an award that year publicly on our team for, you know, pushing and they didn't let my lack of quota attainment affect me negatively in my career, which I will always be thankful for. Let me ask you this. I mean, that is such a wonderful trait that you have as far as communicating, you know, to your point early and often that there's a problem, like not like failing in the dark. Where does that come from? Probably my parents, honestly. But yeah, I mean, being loud with failure has always been encouraged by my parents. So I would struggle with something at school. And so they'd say, tell me this, you know, tell me why you're struggling with this. And then they would sit down and encourage me so they could help me. So it wouldn't be a struggle. I still to this day, I don't really know how to ride a bike very well, (laughs) but I was always really vocal about that with my parents. And, you know, for a while I would avoid telling them, oh, I don't know how to ride a bike or it scares me. And then one day I was just like, hey, it really scares me. And they helped me with that and they helped me through that. And so I think just always having a community around me to encourage me when I struggle with things is really what has been a big proponent to doing that in my career as well. Yeah. Gosh, I thank you for sharing that because it's just, you know, I think that's such a such a wonderful strength of yours to be able to do that as a kid with your parents and and that (laughs) idea that like failing is only failure if we don't learn from it, you know, Mm -hmm. and that it's, it, you know, it can be very valuable and not, you know, stigmatizing it as this negative thing. And, and then it just sounds like, again, like that was kind of reinforced in the leadership that you had too, that created really safe spaces that allowed, allowed for, you to be vocal, to be open and to partner with you to help work through very real challenges. Again, that were 
outside of your control. It wasn't a reflection of you or your ability. These were just circumstances that you were, you were in. So I thank you for elaborating on that because it is, it's such a great trait. And I always love digging in on things like that because it was, that was a huge trouble area for me in my career. I did not do that well. I failed in the dark way too much and way too long. And, and I had people who worked for me who did what you did. And I, that's actually when I learned is by watching yeah. others on my team who would teach me how valuable it was as a leader to have somebody who could speak up and just tell you what was going on. So you could do something about it. Yeah. I also am just such a fan of Brene Brown and, you know, mm. the power of vulnerability, yes. but truly humanity wants to help other people and you can't help somebody else if you don't know what they're struggling with. And so I think by being vulnerable and sharing where your struggles are, people are like, Hey, I struggle with that too. Let me help you. And so that has always been super encouraging as well. That's awesome. Well, let me ask you this because you are in these kind of executive roles, you're working with local and state governments. And then your last year at Microsoft, you move into a strategic engagement manager role where you're now focused on tech for social impact. Yes. So how does that trans like, how does that come to be? You know, so it's so funny. Side story here is when I first started at Microsoft, my leader was so gracious and let me take a couple of weeks off to go actually help with an orphanage in Myanmar. So on the, the Thai Myanmar Burma border. And I spent a couple of weeks there with these children, learning a lot about what their needs are, and actually end up getting super sick from, you know, food that was washed in water that was not clean. And through that time, I also, a couple of my friends had been doing some fundraising for the global water crisis. And so together we launched Drink Local, Think Global, which is a nonprofit Mm -hmm. based on partnering with craft breweries to alleviate the global water crisis. So that has always just been kind of a passion project on the side, but my heart has always really been in nonprofit. And so when Microsoft came out and announced this new org called Tech for Social Impact, I actually, like a crazy person, just cold called this new leader who is a senior vice president, something you don't normally do. But I just called and said, hey, I hear this org is opening up. I'm really passionate about this. I don't know if you have any jobs open, but if there's anything I can do to support, let me know. And she kind of laughed and was like, who are you? (laughs) But we stayed connected. And when there was a role open, I took it immediately and joined as kind of, you know, one of the founding members of the team, I think there was maybe five or 10 of us at the time. And now it's a couple hundred person org, but it was just an incredible opportunity to pair what I love about nonprofit with supporting them through technology. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because, you know, it's launching your nonprofit launching a team within a larger company, but, uh, you know, a new team being part of a founding team. So, I mean, these little flavors of you being very entrepreneurial in nature, even despite having working at these bigger companies, let's talk about your nonprofit for a minute, because you're still doing this and you're still active and it's been six years, which is really cool. What is your kind of level of involvement there? What type of work do you do in, you know, in a given year with your nonprofit? My two team members, actually went full-time pre-COVID and we had a grant that supported them to go full-time, which was awesome. We were growing, we were partnering with more craft breweries, building more wells all around the world. But unfortunately with COVID, the government grant got cut. And so they went back to their full-time jobs and it's really been more of a passive nonprofit 
but definitely something we still all really believe in and believe that, you know, the global water crisis is real and it's definitely something that we should be supporting. Yeah. Well, I think just, I mean, sometimes it, it is, it's so interesting how, again, another example, it seems like a lot of the work that you do is, you know, you're playing on these very big scales or you're working with these, in these infrastructures that, you know, there, there has been a lot going on and, and having to kind of go kind of, kind of be fluid, like water in a lot of ways and kind of flow with what's happening. And, and so I, I love that it exists. I love that y'all have created it. And I have no doubt in my mind that because it's something that is done in the hearts of three of you, that this is, you know, it will resurge when the time is right. Um, because mm-hmm. it's not going to go away. I have, <laughs> I have no doubt, even in the <laughs> short time that we've known each other, that this is not going anywhere. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you're in this role for a year at Microsoft and then you make the move to Salesforce. So what takes you away from Microsoft where you've built this incredible career reputation? You've been there for five years now. How do you end up at Salesforce? So I honestly thought that I would spend my entire career at Microsoft. It's an amazing company. I really, really loved it, but I had a mentor actually that asked me to leave Microsoft to go to Salesforce. And I thought, no way, there's no way I'm going to stay here forever. But ultimately they made it really enticing. Like I said, I was putting through my husband through medical school at the time and financially it just made sense for me to make the jump. You know, you've mentioned mentors many, 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 many times. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this because it sounds like some were part of programs within Microsoft. This one perhaps was outside of, I would love to just pick your brain for a minute on how have you approached mentors and having them and getting them throughout your career? Absolutely. I honestly will say that the number one proponent of my success in my career is having the right mentors and the right advocates for me within my companies and without externally as well. But I think that there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing is to be intentional and to make sure that your mentor has buy-in as well. And so I've had people, some of my mentors throughout my careers have you know, come and gone, but they were there for specific phases. And I think that that's really important to remember too. Mm-hmm. Early on, I had people that really taught me what is sales, how to do sales. And once I had that under my belt, we became more of peers. And that was a really cool transition too. But the intentionality is the number one most important thing I think is, do we, let's set a regular cadence. Here are my goals. Am I actually taking the steps to follow their recommendations Are there books I should be reading? Are there other people I should be talking to? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the mentors in my career are the people that open doors for me to speak on stage or take different roles or have visibility. And I never would have gotten here without that. Yeah, I appreciate you elaborating on that. And also, I think it's such a great call out of like mentors can kind of take all shapes and they can be for a specific topic or skill. They can be for a very specific time in your life. Like mentors don't have to be a lifelong thing. Um, so I think that's such a great call out too, of like having a variety, depending on the area that's a focus or maybe a development area that you're focusing on. And then I love how you talk about that intentionality too. Cause I think there's so much to be said for 
if you're asking for this person's time and their expertise, like not just throwing away that information, but doing something with it. And, and then once you do something, if it, if it's valuable, great, if it's not, maybe you don't go back and ask them for more help. Right. But <laughs> I, I do think that's another really important call out is like that respect for the relationship and that, you know, part of honoring their investment in you is, is following through on what mm-hmm. you know they're pouring in. All right. So very exciting. And I mean, it's a, it's a big, big deal to, to land at Salesforce. And, you know, again, we're unbelievably successful here making chairman's club, like no small feat (laughs) to to doing that, but you were working in the retail space. I was, and then you moved in June of 2019, but I think everyone knows at this point, nine months later, the world shut down and retail was one of the (laughs) hardest hit places. So Tell us about servicing again, yet again, you find yourself servicing a market that is getting impacted by a, in this case, a global pandemic that has virtually shut the world down. Honestly, it was wild. It was wild during that time. I remember being on a call with Mark Benioff, you know, for the whole company where he was announcing that we were ceasing travel because we don't know what this virus is. I remember thinking, this is crazy. Like, what is this thing? I had seven trips scheduled to visit clients. And then we got word that we were supposed to cease reaching out to customers until there was some sort of semblance of normalcy. Like, what is this going to look like? How is this going to impact things? And so like everybody else, you know, I went on 12 walks a day and had nothing to do, but there started to be a delicate balance of, okay, we obviously need to respect the situation a lot of our customers are going to be struggling, but also how do I still do my job? Mm -hmm. And so what actually ended up happening, which was crazy is retail moved everything online. They went completely digital because all their stores were closed. People were not going into malls. And I was in the e-commerce segment, which was a beautiful marriage of how do we help these people go digital as quickly as possible? And so while a a lot of the retailers were struggling, we saw their e-commerce business booming. And so it was actually a really, really awesome time for us to lean in, really help our customers and keep them afloat using technology. Yes. Yes. How great to be able to help them rapidly pivot their business to where they could stay alive and drive revenue and have the technology in place to enable that. That is really cool. It was really fun. It was a really crazy, super busy year, but I learned so much. We were able to help so much and actually see it in action was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So we've kind of caught back up with where we left off when we first started. At what point did your former colleague reach out to you and plant the seed about coming and working with him? He reached out, let's see, January of... 2021. So he reached out January of 2021 and just said, Hey, this is kind of something I'm thinking about. And actually I had been toying with a couple of different ideas on my own, Mm -hmm. uh, really in the nonprofit space, nonprofit technology space with a really good friend of mine. And so we were just toying with some different ideas and, you know, I had reached out to him about, you know, he had left to be an entrepreneur. And so we talked about that. And then ultimately you know, he said, Hey, why don't we give this a shot together? And so, you know, kind of tried playing with it for a couple months and realized, Oh my gosh, this actually has legs. Like there's something here. 
and I'm loving it. It's fun. So it's kind of what made me make the jump. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So now is that company still around? Like, where is that today? Yeah. The company is still maintaining the customers that are there today. Yeah. Okay. What ultimately made you decide to leave? So ultimately it just came down to a difference of what we wanted. I was on stage at Venture Atlanta and we got a bunch of term sheets. We actually ended up going through due diligence and raised a little over 2 million. But when it came time to close, my partner really said, Hey, you know, I don't know that I want to be a venture back company. I like having kind of a lifestyle business and I'm here to build a billion dollar company. And so right. you know, at that point, we just realized this probably isn't the right partnership. And um, that's when I knew that it was time for me to kind of go off on my own and, and start my own thing. Yeah. So again, so good to be able to learn that early on that, you know, kind of aspirationally, you two had very different definitions of success. And so this was a good kind of natural point. But, and I think how great that because you had been on stage present, you had a mentor in Catherine that that's really, you know, kind of what unlocked where you are today. So, oh, that's so neat. Oh my gosh. Well, let me ask you this. As you think about your career up until this point, either a lesson that you've learned along the way or a piece of advice that has served you really well throughout your career. If there's one thing you want people to take away, what would that thing be? I think the thing that I've learned both being in giant corporate settings and talking to tech founders early on and tech founders with successful exits is that nobody knows what they're doing. (laughs) nobody knows what they're doing. And I have learned this. I remember asking a leader that I had at Salesforce, like, Hey, you know, what do you do when this happens? He goes, I Google it. And he was one of the most brilliant, amazing leaders. And I'm like, you Google it. You don't know this. And he's like, no, nobody can know everything. Nobody actually knows like the correct thing to do all the time. Nobody really knows exactly what they're doing. And so I've learned that from everybody. It's a lot of just figuring it out along the way, learning from other people and not to have imposter syndrome because everyone's in this together. We're all in the same boat. Right. Yeah. I think it's such a great reminder that yes, that nobody can know it all. So like the, the story we tell ourselves about like, Oh, everybody else has it all together. Like that's not, that's not actually true. Yeah. Oh, well, I appreciate you sharing that. And I just, it's been so wonderful getting to hear your story, getting to learn, you know, kind of all these different aspects of your career up until this point and how so many things about what you're doing now make so much sense based off of, you know, all the things that you experienced leading up to now. So it's been, it's been such a treat and getting to know you better. So thank you for being on Rising Tide. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun. And I'm just honored to be alongside all the other women you've spoken to in the past. I always enjoy in these conversations that as we go through the journey to where someone is today, you start to see where seeds were planted and these patterns and behavior that led someone ultimately to where they are. If you enjoyed Lauren's story, I would encourage you to take a moment or reach out and let her know the impact her story had on you. I've linked all of her information. So if you're curious to learn more about her amazing company, Zinnia, you can easily access that in the episode notes. And if you enjoy the episode, please take a moment and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. 
As always, I want to say a big thank you to Josh Reedford for his amazing audio editing. And last but never least, thank you to this amazing community for showing up, for investing in you. And until next week, keep rising.